If you have your Bibles, get them out, turn to the book of 1 John. We're continuing our study through 1 John. We're going to be looking at chapter 4, verse 7 to 20. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Richard and Bill have some in their hands. I'll get one to your seat so you can follow along with us. 1 John chapter 4, 7, verse 7 through 21. We're going to cover verses 7 through 21, but let's just begin by reading verses 7 through 11, then we'll hit the rest as we go along. Starting in verse 7, the Apostle John writes, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this the love of God was manifested towards us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. And this is love. Excuse me, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Tell them my message this morning is God's love is true love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we can spend together in your word. We thank you. Holy Spirit, for working and moving in our lives to give us understanding of your word. But also, Lord, we pray for application this morning, that we can apply these truths to our lives, Lord, and that we're drawn more close to you and our relationship with you. Father, we also pray if there's anyone that has joined us this morning that has yet to surrender their heart and life to you, they're not born again this morning. Lord, would you especially speak to their hearts, help them see their need for you, And they need to turn from their sin and turn to you today. Thank you for our time together, Lord. Thank you for your word. Bless our time, we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, after a very long and boring sermon, the people were filing out of the church, saying nothing to the pastors who stood in the back. And towards the end of the line was a thoughtful person who always commented on his sermons. Pastor, today your sermon reminded me of the peace and love of God, she says to him. Well, that thrilled the pastor. He'd never heard anything like that. He said, no one has ever said anything like that about my preaching before. Tell me why. Well, she says, it reminded me of the peace of God because it passed all understanding. (laughs) And it reminded me of the love of God because it endured forever. Hopefully you won't feel that way this morning about me, but you, but you can think that way about God's love. It does endure forever because God's love is true love. See, as we come to verse 7 here of chapter 4, John brings us right back to his favorite, favorite subject, which is love. John is often called the apostle of love or the disciple that Jesus loved. But to know and to love God was John's life. If any apostle knew about love, it would be John. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. If you're a note taker, we're going to see three things. Number one, the source of love. Number two, the son of love. And number three, the system of love. First, we have the source of love. Now, remember, this was written to combat the the Gnostic heresy that was going on during that time, or what is known as Gnosticism, 
They believed that knowledge was the way to salvation, and they alone had the true knowledge uh, about salvation. So what John has done to combat this throughout his epistle is to give us tests to truly know if you know we are truly saved, and then to, to judge what they're saying by the Word of God. Now, some of these tests John gave us were doctrinal. What is your view of sin? What is your view of Jesus Christ? Some of the tests that John has given us was moral. The evidence that you truly are saved, if you love, you obey. If you obey, you demonstrate that love. Well, now here, John tells us the source of this love. Look now at verses 7 and 8. John says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Whenever I read this verse, I can't help but think of my kids when they were young, Salty the Singing Songbook, sang this song, and it was, you know, I won't sing it. Beloved, the girls would go to the next part. They would do the echo. Let us love one another. Love one another. Pastor, you shouldn't have sang it. <laughs> Great kids' song. It, it caused you to remember the verse, to know it by heart. But it's truly a remarkable statement. God is love. Love has its source. It's God. But you see, it's only by knowing God that we learn to love. And it's only by loving that we learn to know God. Because love has that dual relationship to God. Love comes from God and leads to God because God is love. Now I want you to notice what this is not saying here. It doesn't say that God loves, though He does. But what it says is that God is love. So any true understanding of God must include all the revelation about His nature. What I mean by that is God's very nature, God's very character is that of love. Now this is a very exciting thought when you realize that God cannot and will not do anything that's contrary to His nature. Now we certainly know people can do that. When someone you know pretty well does something kind of bizarre and you say, boy, that's not like Him. So weird. Normally they behave this way or that way. We have a brother in the church, Stephen, loves hot sauce, puts it on, on everything that there is. If you go to dinner with him and he doesn't put hot sauce on his food and if the sweat isn't pouring down his face and if the tears aren't coming out of his eyes, you'd say, there's something wrong here. This is so unlike him. I can't believe he, he did that. But for us to say, Boy, that's not like him. And speaking about God, that's impossible. God is love. And everything that God does is loving. It's impossible for God to do something that is, not, is, is unloving. You know, is there something going on right now in your life and you might be questioning God's love towards you? How could God allow this in my life? It's so weird. It's so unlike God. Well, think again. You've got a wrong view of God. Because again, God is love and everything He does is loving and it's impossible for God to violate His own nature. That's why you can actually say there are things that, that God cannot do, things that are against God's nature. For example, you know that God cannot lie. God cannot lie. It's impossible for God to lie. Holiness is, is a part of His intrinsic nature. He cannot do otherwise. God cannot learn anything new. You know, before he created anything, he knew all about it. There's no progression in knowledge about God as it is with man. God has no limitations on anything he can create. Here's another one. 
No, like that God cannot stop being. God can't stop existing. The nature of God is an infinite meaning, no end. God's unchanging moral character is a moral absolute. That includes his holiness, his justice, his love, his mercy, and truth. God is who he is forever and the only constant thing in the universe. He's perfection. So then when it comes to, uh, then the same way God cannot do anything that is loving, and because God is love, he cannot do anything but what is loving. So why would we doubt the love of God? The Bible says God is love. And since the Bible says in John 3.16 that God so loved the world, that means that God loves you and has your best in mind. Look at verse 7. John says, And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. That word know there in verse 7 means more than just a casual acquaintance. It means to know personally. Same word that's used to describe an intimate union between a husband and wife. Genesis chapter 4 verse 1 where it says, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. In other words, to know God means to have a deep, intimate relationship with Him. It means sharing His life and enjoying His love. So what John is saying here is that the love becomes a valid test of whether or not you're truly born again. You're truly saved. If you're truly born again, then we've been given that new nature, God's nature, which is love. And since God is love, and if we say we have a personal intimate relationship with this God of love, there must be evidence in our lives of that same love to support what we're saying. Because we're God's kids. It's like this. You know, let's say a mom, you know, she's got this beach blonde wavy hair and she she has a baby and that baby is born it's got the same blonde hair and you go oh man no doubt that's they look so much alike or the dad you know tall and skinny and they have a son he's built the same way or you know sadly all my kids have the humphrey forehead i should say the humphrey five head i you know I, i'm sorry we look alike and, and when, when a child shares a parent's most distinguishable trait, you can be confident, you know, that they were born to that parent. They have that parent's nature. They have their parent's bloodline. And that's true with us. God's most distinguishable trait is love. All true love is of God. So rightly, you would expect those that are born of God is to love as He loves. And certainly, the reverse is true. Look at verse 8. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. I like what Warren Wiersbe, how he paraphrases that verse. The person who does not have this divine kind of love has never entered into a personal, experiential knowledge of God. What he knows is in his head, but it has never gotten into his heart. Now, we need to remember and take this in context. It's not since... God is love. I can believe whatever I want. I can do whatever I want because, hey, God is love. As so many churches are teaching that today. No, we covered all of that in the first three chapters. Love is not the exclusive test. There is a moral test of righteousness and a doctrinal test, which is truth. In fact, John said in 1 John three eighteen and 19, My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before Him. Remember, true love is evidence of fellowship with God. And knowing God isn't just a once-in-a-lifetime crisis thing where you come in and, and shed a few tears and you've got a clean conscience. 
It's a daily walk with the Lord, growing in Christ-likeness and qualities. If you know God, your relationship should deepen. Jerry Vines tells of a man in his church who he describes as the sweetest-smelling man that I ever met. And he said, curiosity got the best of him. And so he asked the man, what cologne do you use? You smell like a rose all the time. The man replied, I don't wear cologne. I just happen to work for wholesale floors, and I'm around flowers all the time. I think of our brother Wakast. I don't know if he's here this morning. He, uh, he works at a perfume store, manages one at the mall, and we teased him the other, other night. Said, so what are you wearing today? Listen, when you're around Jesus all the time, his fragrance is going to rub off on you. A person who truly knows God, who is in union with him, will be changed. A Christian will absorb the love that comes from God. So all the source of love that we have comes from God because God is love. Now, how does God prove his love? Or how does God manifest, or has he, how has he manifested his love towards us? That brings us to the second point, the son of love. Look at verse 9. John says, in this the love of God was manifested towards us. That word manifested means to put on display. It's kind of like if you worked in a grocery store and you wanted to put a special on display. You put it in the middle aisle so everyone can see. God has put his love on display for us. He says, in this the love of God was manifested, displayed towards us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. So, Don't look for God's display of love in a grocery aisle. Look for it in a Bethlehem manger. Look for it in a border town called Nazareth. Look for it in the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Look for it in the streets of Jerusalem. Look for it at the hill of Calvary. Look for it at the empty tomb. God's love for us and the life he offers us is on display through his son, Jesus Christ. But that's not all, as the TV infomercials late nights would say. Not only do we have God's love displayed for us, but we have God's compassion displayed for us in Jesus coming as a man. God's wisdom displayed for us is revealed in his teaching. God's power was on display in his miracles. God's mercy and grace was visible in his dying. God's redemption was unveiled in his resurrection. You want to know what God looked to Jesus. He is God's love on display. It's sad that so often people talk about their great love for God and the sacrifice that they made and, and the gift they gave and the, to the extremes in which they want. But look at what John says in verse 10 and 11. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. That's one of the greatest verses in all the world. Here is in love, not that we love God. He's lovable but that he truly loves us and sent his son to be the sacrifice for our sins. That's what's amazing. I mean, big deal. Someone says, I love God. Big deal. God loves you. That's the big deal. I think and the longer we get to know each other, the more amazing that becomes. I mean, I'm, I'm amazed that God will actually love you. And you're amazed that God will actually love me. But he does. That's what's so amazing. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He wants great advice. On the whole... God's love for us is a much safer subject to think about than our love for Him. Our love for God is nothing compared to His love for us. Our love is like a drop in in, in an ocean where His love is like the ocean. It's been said, love always flows downward. 
It's like a parent's love for their kid is always far more powerful than the love of the kid for his parent. Likewise, who among men have ever loved God in the same way that God has loved us? I mean, this is love, that God loved us enough to send his son to die in our place. Listen, I love you guys. I love you guys a bunch. But I don't love you enough to sacrifice any of my three boys. I guess I I can include Calvin and Dan, my son-in-laws. I guess. No. I don't I don't love any of you enough to sacrifice one of my five boys. If it's between you and one of my boys, I'd make sure you got a really good funeral service. I, I I'm just saying. I'd sooner sacrifice my own life than that of my, my sons. But God, God loves you so much that he sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. And I love that phrase, only begotten, that he uses in verse 9. Same phrase that's used in Hebrews eleven seventeen to describe Isaac and, and the son of Abraham. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who received the promise offered up his only begotten son. Only begotten, unique, one of a kind. God has no other. Only begotten. Jesus is not one in a series of special revelations. Jesus is exclusive. He is unique. God in the flesh. As John points out in John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then he lays it all out. John 1, 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory of the only begotten of the Father. Full of grace and truth. John's saying when you look to Jesus. You're going to see God. And seeing Jesus shows us just how sacrificial God's love is for us. Because, again, God is not content to simply tell us he loves us. He showed us proof sending Jesus to the cross. Jesus going to the cross. Verse 10, in it, this is love. Not that we love God, but he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation. Hard to say, but it means satisfaction. In the English dictionary, it's the word appeasement. It has a meaning to satisfy, to satisfy God's broken law. Yeah, God is love, but God is also just. That attribute is closely related to his holiness and his righteousness. And because of this, God also has wrath and God has anger. And that kind of bugs some people. They, you know, they would say, oh, I believe in a God of love, but I don't like the God of judgment. What they're really saying is, I don't like a God that, that gives me rules. I don't like the God that gives me absolutes because I want to have my own version of spirituality. I want to do what I want to do and live the way I want to live. I want to have the hope of heaven when I die and live like hell in the meantime. Break all of God's commandments and have all the fun this world has offered, but still know that God loves me. Well, that's a different God than the God that we worship, the God of the Bible. Yeah, it's true that God loves you, but it's also true that God is just. And because he is just, there is a penalty for breaking God's laws, for sinning. You know, some of us, we say, well, you know, we don't like justice unless, unless someone rips us off. Someone, you know, breaks into your house and steals, oh, Lord. Uh, you know, just, just I pray, you know, so the police catches them and, and, and they get caught in jail, uh, caught and thrown in jail. You want justice. You know, someone cuts you off on the highway and the highway patrol goes right after them and, and, and they get pulled over. You go, yeah, there's justice in the world. But then as you get pulled over, you go, oh, Lord, mercy. Please, I need mercy. We believe in justice. There needs to be justice in the world. 
Yes, God is a God of love, but He's also a just God. That means if you've broken His commandments and seem to be getting away with it, know that there is a final court you're going to have to face one day. And because God is just, He must judge sin. The Bible says the soul that sins shall surely die. He says if we sin against Him and break His commandments, there's a penalty for it. The wages of sin is death. Don't care who your defense attorney is, you're not going to get out of this one unless... Unless Jesus Christ is your defense attorney, you've accepted him as your Lord and Savior. He said, yeah, I know he sinned. I died for that sin. He's one of mine. And you get, get, get uh, set free. Jesus was sent to be the propitiation for our sins, took the place on the cross of Calvary, endured the wrath of God that was due us, all the sins of the world placed upon him. The penalty of our sin was paid in full. That's love. That's love in action. His work towards us. I heard an interesting story this week on the briefing by Pastor Albert Moeller. Maybe you caught it this week. I, I like this guy. He, he does a Monday through Friday briefing. He brought up that this is the 20th anniversary of the song that we sang this morning called In Christ Alone. Now the writers of that song, Keith Getty and Stuart Townhead, has called the song a rebel song because in it, uh, he says it's in rebellion against the superficiality and overly emotional content of so much that has been packaged as worship music today. Keith Getty has said this quote, if we're going to build a generation of people that think deep thoughts about God, who have rich prayer lives, and who are the culture makers of the next generation, then we need to be teaching them songs with theological depth, end quote. I like that. A song does just that. It's a song that testifies of the love of God who sent His Son to die on the cross for us. In fact, listen to verse 2 of this song. It speaks of Christ's love for us. In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God and helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones He came to save. Till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied, for every sin on Him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. Now, there's a controversy, Albert Moeller reports, back in 2012-2013 with the Presbyterian Church USA, a liberal church. They wanted to uh, publish a hymnal with all the popular songs of the day, but they had a problem with that verse. So they thought they could change it. They didn't like, till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. What they wanted was, till on that cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. Good poetry but not the same theology. Now, thank the Lord for copyrights. Keith Getty, Stuart Tanner, who holds the copyright of the song, said, no way, Jose, you're not changing it. So that song didn't make it in the hymnal. Interesting enough, you know, you don't see that verse in a lot of the, the worship music today. But why is it such a big deal? Because, yes, God is a God of love, but it's also true that God is just. And yes, it's true that God is forgiving, but it's also true that God is righteous. And because of God's love for us, that love was manifested towards us in that He sent His Son to take the wrath, the wrath of what we so rightly deserve because we've sinned. We deserve death. But God loved us so much, He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Why, why would you want to take away from what Jesus did by changing a verse? Just saying the love of God was magnified, sure, but it doesn't encompass what was truly done on that cross as Jesus died. The wrath of God was satisfied. 
And so, because of that, John can say to us in verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, look what God has done for us, we also ought to love one another. That verse is God's answer to every lame excuse why we aren't to love each other. I recently saw this meme on social media of Mel Gibson when he was directing the movie The Passion of the Christ. I thought how it so fits in our study this morning. I don't mean this to be disrespectful, but take a look. The caption reads, that moment when you try to explain to Jesus how hard your life has been lately. I think a better caption might read, that moment you try to tell Jesus why you can't love that person. I, I, I mean, have you ever found yourself saying that person, it's just impossible to love? You know, not only have I heard many excuses not to love, I've made a few up myself. But if God so loved us, He loved you when you were unlovable, when you were sinful, enemies, we ought to love one another. He loved us in spite of our hate, in spite of our antagonism. Paul wrote this in Romans uh, 13.8, Owe no one anything except to love one another, for you who loves another has fulfilled the law. Paul says, not only can you love them, but you owe it to them. You owe it to love one another because of what Jesus did for us. It's an obligation. Listen, love is not just being nice to a person face to face, but and then cutting them down behind their back. Love is not just merely tolerating that co-worker until they either quit or you quit. <laughs> it's an obligation. Now, I need to make one more important point. If you do not have the life of God in you, you cannot love like God is calling you to love. You're not born again. He, I mean, He is the source of love. If you're not born again, you can't love the way He calls you to love. But if you have the life of God, and this is John's whole point, you can love like this, and you should. See, it's not, it's not a feeling, it's not an emotion, but it's acting on that love. I like what C.S. Lewis wrote. It's a helpful comment on what, a Christian, what Christian love involves. Listen to this. It would be quite wrong to think that the way to become loving is to sit trying to manufacture affectionate feelings. Some people are cold by temperament. That may be a misfortune for them, but it is no more sin than having a bad digestion is sin. And it does not cut them off from the chance or excuse them from duty of learning love. So you may not be like, oh, I just love you so much. You may be very quiet and calm. What he's saying in this rule is perfectly simple. Don't waste your time trying to figure out if you love your neighbor, love your neighbor. And as soon as you do this, we learn one of the greatest secrets. When you are behaving as if you love someone, you then start to love them. It's like the woman that went to the lawyer and said, I want to get a divorce. I really hate my husband and I want to hurt him. Give me some advice how I can really just, just stick it to him. The attorney says, look, you're going to divorce the guy anyway. So for three months, don't criticize him. Speak only well of him. Build him up. Every time he does something uh, nice, commend him for it. Tell him what a great guy he is. Do that for three months. After he thinks that he has your confidence and love, hit him with the news of divorce. It'll really hurt him. The woman thought, okay, I, I can't go wrong on this. I'm divorcing this guy anyway, so why should I speak badly about him anymore? I'm going to speak only well of him. So she complimented her husband and everything that he did. For three months, she told him what a great man he was. She acted loving towards him every single day. And you know what happened in that relationship? After three months, they forgot all about divorce and went on a second honeymoon. Because <laughs> they put into action what they're supposed to do. Don't waste time trying to figure out if you love, just love. This brings us to our final point. 
the system of love. Look at verse 12. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love has been perfected in us. So when John says no one has seen God at any time, that means that no human being in this mortal body with these mortal eyes in this frame of flesh has ever looked fully upon deity. Now you may say, well, I thought when people saw Jesus, he was God. They did, but Jesus was God veiled in the flesh. He was God, God incognito. He was God veiled. Paul put it this way in Philippians 2, 7 and 8. That he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. So when Jesus came to this earth, he was veiled in flesh. That is, you couldn't see his radiant glory, which he had with the Father before the foundations of the world. Jesus said it right before he went to the cross in his high priestly prayer, John 17, 5. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. But while Jesus walked the earth, you were not recognized by looking at him that he was God. Let me put it a different way. When you looked at Jesus, then someone would say, well, who's that guy over there? Oh, that's God. But you would, you'd never know that. You know? Well, he's not floating off the ground. He's not glowing all over. When you looked at Jesus, he was a peasant carpenter from Galilee, and that's what he looked like. So when the reality of who he is struck the disciples, they were blown away. I think of when Jesus stilled the waves on the sea, it was perfectly calm. And the, the disciples declared this in Matthew 8, 27. But the men marveled, saying, What manner of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey them? Things are starting to compute. Hey, this, this man just might be God. Or when Peter, James, and John were taken up on the Mount of Transfiguration and Jesus was transfigured before their eyes, seeing him in his glory that, that had been veiled in the flesh, they got a glimpse of his deity. They knew that he was God. Not only the fact that an audible voice came, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, hear him. They saw the glory in the mountain. He pulled back the flesh, the veil of flesh, and his divine essence shone through. They saw him. But no one has seen God in his full essence. See, in order to see God in that way, when we get to heaven, we, we need to get new bodies. Now, thank God we will get new bodies. Some of us are in desperate need of a new model. Why? Because you can't go up to heaven in this body. If you did, poof, you'd dissolve your history. Remember Moses, when Moses wanted to, to see God, and, and God said, nah, you can't see me and live, and i got some things for you to do. And so God said, here, I'll tell you what I'm going to do, Mo. This paraphrase. You hide in a rock, and, and I'll just kind of cruise by, and you can see my afterglow. I'll cruise by, and I'll put my hand over the cleft of the rock. And, and, and he says, I'll cover you with my hand, so when I pass by, I'll remove my hand, and you'll see my afterglow. Moses says, cool. Again, paraphrase. So he's hiding in the cave. God puts his hand over and Moses saw the glory of God. And it was such a radical, radical experience that when Moses came down into the camp, guess what? His face was shining. It was glowing. No man can see God and live. Just a glimpse of God's glory of Moses, Moses saw. So can you imagine what it's going to be like when we're in heaven? New bodies that can take in a full-blown view of God. 
the full experience of the glory of God and be in His presence and not be destroyed. You know, you can't even come into the presence of God with any hint of sin. So when we come into His presence, we know sin is no more. How awesome this is going to be. I like what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. There are those that just don't believe in the resurrection. But Jesus said it very well in John 14, 1-3. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am there you may be also. Love that verse. I was listening to Pastor Tony Evans this past week on the radio, and I love his teaching. He said, God is always doing two things in your life. First, God is getting your destination ready for you. And secondly, he's getting you ready for your destination. He's getting heaven ready for you, and he's getting you ready for heaven. And I do believe that the Bible teaches very clearly that when a Christian dies, you go immediately into the presence of the Lord. You'll see Jesus face to face and will be with him for all eternity. But on this earth, verse 12, John says, no man has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God abides in us and his love has been perfected in us. John is saying that although others can't see God, they can see him manifested in your life when you love as God wants you to love. Some people say, well, where is God? I can't see him. Well, okay, go hang out with those Christians over there. Talk to them. Listen to what what they they say, and you'll see God. Go talk to that guy over there and ask him to show you his driver's license from before he got saved. (laughs) You know, and, and ask him to tell you his testimony. You'll see God. Listen, others can see God in and through our lives and what we do not do, not just what we say, but what we do. I like this story from a, a Salvation Army worker who met a homeless lady on the street. She invited this destitute woman into the chapel to receive help. The woman ignored her invitation until the volunteer did something unusual. She said she'd later never done it before, but, but a divine impulse caused her to reach down and kiss the homeless lady on the cheek. The woman began to sob. She came into the chapel, and that night she received Christ. She shared in her testimony, you told me that God loved me, but it wasn't until you showed me that God loved me that I wanted to be saved. I like that. John says, verse 13, By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. How do you know if you're really walking with the Lord and dwelling in the Lord because you have a spirit. How do you know you have a spirit? Well, because the fruit of the spirit is love. So if you're walking in love, then you know that you have his spirit. Verse 14. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. I love that phrase. Savior of the world. Verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. We'll look at this next week, assurance of our salvation. But John is saying to the Gnostic that would deny the humanity of Jesus Christ, the Incarnation, he's saying, if you want to call yourself a Christian, then you have to say you have to believe that Jesus came in the flesh to be the Savior of the world. You'll confess that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. In other words, you can't be wrong about Jesus and right with God. If God truly abides in your heart, uh, then, then you're going to embrace what the Bible teaches about what Jesus, who Jesus is. 
verse 16 and 17, and we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. That Greek word in verse 17 translated perfected means complete. In other words, the love of God comes full circle. God proclaims it, God proves it, but then finds an ultimate destination when it fills our needy hearts. God says God's love is not just mere speculation. speculation. It's not just hoping God loves me. Uh, I've known his love, he says. I am certain. And how do we know? Again, Jesus stretched out his arms on the cross and said, "I, I love you this much. That's why we can say God's love is true love. Listen, love always has an object. And today the object of of God's love is you. It's that way we know that God is with us so that when judgment day comes, we have nothing to fear because it's all settled on the cross if you know Christ. That's why John goes on, look at verse 18. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. I shared with us last week the acronym for fear. False evidence appearing real. And we looked at how the purpose of the devil is to spread fear so that we would become enslaved to fear and and how we're seeing the abject fear all around the world gripping fear. But that shouldn't be from those that, that love God. This morning, if you're filled with fear, it's because you're not resting in the love of God. Yeah, all of us face fears. All of us have problems and phobias that we have to battle with. But you need to remind yourself that God loves you. God loves me. Oh, it might be cancer. I'm afraid of the doctor's diagnosis. It might be malignant. Remember, God is love and God loves you. Well, I don't know where the money's going to come from. I fear I'm going to lose my house and my car. Remember, God is love and God loves you. I don't know if I ever have a husband or a wife or kids. Remember, God is love and God loves you. I don't know if my kid will ever move out of my basement. Remember, God is love and God loves you. How about this one? I may lose my job over not taking the jab. Remember, God is love and God loves you. Listen, whatever happens to you, whatever comes into your life, you have to know that it is first filtered through the love of God. And a God who loves you and a God who cares for you and a God who is omnipotent, all-powerful, omniscient, all-knowing, He will take care of you. Nothing separates us from the love of God. In fact, let's read Romans 8, 38 and 39 together. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Someone put it this way. God's love is a love that is in its width, opens his arms to all mankind. A love that's in its length never ends. A love that's in its depth can reach to the most wicked sinner and pull him out of that mire. A love that has a height that reaches up into the heavens where we will be gathered up one day. That's the love that God has for us. And yet, look at verse 19. We love him because he first loved us. What a marvelous verse to take to heart that lets you know just why you love God. We love him because he first loved us. Think about that this morning. When you were living in sin, when you were living in darkness, when you were living in rebellion, 
when you're living in selfishness, God loved you and He still loves you. And the reason you love Him this morning is because He continues to love you. Because He first loved you and if He hadn't first loved you, then you wouldn't be able to love Him this morning. All we can do is reciprocate the love that He's given to us. So let me ask you this morning, how are you doing? How are you doing in displaying God's love to those around us? You know, we live in such a divided country nowadays. And it's really easy to get into our flesh and to respond in our flesh to the evil that we see. You've heard it said, love the sinner, hate the sin. I think it's been easier first lately to hate the sinner and the sin. But that's not what God has called us to do. He's called us to love like he has loved. Now, that doesn't mean we close our eyes to sin. That doesn't mean we, we, we approve of the sin. It just means that, that, that we reach out to the person in love and share to them how much God loves them and how he doesn't want them to stay in their sin. Because if you truly love God, you'll obey him and serve him. Finally, verses 20 and 21. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For you does not love his brother whom he has seen. How can he love God whom he has not seen? And this is the commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. John goes right back to loving God and loving one another. You can't separate the love for God and the love for your brother. You can't do that. You can't say, oh, I love the Lord, but I hate that guy over there. I really love the Lord. As long as that person doesn't come up to me, then I'll just be fine. Lord, I love you. Just can't stand that person in front of me. Wait a minute, I'm in front of you. No, okay. Uh, listen, love. It's a commandment. If you say you love me, then you're going to love your brother and sister. Don't say only if you feel like it. Only if they show you love first. He says, this is what I command you because I love you. You are to love. As we close, can you think of a person in your life that you find it, it's hard to love? Maybe uh, God is calling you to forgive them, to move on, to love them anyway. You might say, Pastor Tom, you don't know what they did to me. How can I love them after this? Listen to this story, and then we'll close. Corrie ten Boom shares this true story in her book, The Hiding Place. It was a church service in Munich that I saw him, the former SS man who had stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center at Ravensbrück. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time. And suddenly it was all there, the room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, Betsy's pain-blanched face. He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, Farline, he said, to think that, as you say, he has washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine. And I, who had preached so often to the people in Blomendal, the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder along my arm and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on his. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives, along with the command, 
the love itself, end quote. Listen, folks, God wants to set us free from hatred this morning. It might be wise for all of us as we close to examine our hearts. Say, Lord, is there any hatred that I have towards anybody in my life? If so, we need to confess it and repent. Perhaps there's been an opportunity for you to show love to someone and you said, you know what, I really don't like that person. They offended me. I, I'm, I'm not going to talk to them. I'm not going to reach out to them. Maybe you, you're, you, know, you don't even realize you're not loving as God called you to love. We need to confess it and, and turn and begin to love as Jesus loved. I mean, how can you say you, you love God who you've never seen, but you don't love your brother who you do see? Maybe this morning you've, you've realized how much God loves you in sending Jesus to die on the cross for you. And you've never experienced this before. Maybe you don't, you've never known Jesus as your Lord and Savior. I would pray that you would not leave here without making that commitment to Him and giving your life to Him who will forgive you of your sin, who took the wrath for, for you upon Himself so that you might live. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this time this morning. We thank You for Your Word, Lord, because... As we go through it, it covers every aspect of our lives and what we need to hear and what we need to apply. And the same is true for us this morning, Lord. To, we seek to apply these truths that we have read. So, Lord, if, if we're not loving as the way you've called us to love, help us to do so starting right now. Lord, if I have hatred in my heart towards a person, Lord, help me to confess it and ask for your forgiveness and start loving that person. If I'm avoiding a person just because I don't want to show love to them, again, because of a, an attitude, Lord, help me to confess that sinful attitude and in turn love that person. And finally, Father, if there's anybody here that does not know you and have never experienced the love that you have for them and they realize this morning that, Jesus, you died for them upon the cross, rose from the grave, and now you sit resurrected for them, make an intercession for them. If they've not realized that, but today they have, I pray they would come to you and they would make that commitment to follow you all the days of their life. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, they would surrender their heart and life to you right now. While their heads are bowed and their eyes are closed, is there anyone here you, you want to give your life to Jesus Christ, you want to be born again, you want your sin forgiven? If that's your desire, would you raise your hand so I could pray for you this morning? Anybody at all. I just want to give you that opportunity. Just raise your hand. Thank you, Lord, for our time together. Thank you for the blessing it is to worship you. Thank you for your love towards us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.